If there is a lesson here for us, it is that sometimes fighting it out to conclusion isn't necessary or helpful. We ought to just get on with it. Sometimes dividing up the task is the thing to do. Some, some, sometimes dividing is a good thing if the alternative is paralysis and indecision. Listen, you can be friends with people you aren't currently working alongside of. So it is here. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Unity is important, but mission is important too. And here in Acts 15, we see the church processing a number of significant disagreements in remarkably healthy ways. They made space for rigorous dialogue. They made important distinctions. And in one case, they decided to divide and conquer. They did what they needed to do to maintain unity, and they did what they needed to do to maintain focus, which as more recent church history has reminded us is not easy to do. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 15. At the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had just completed the first ever foreign missionary journey. It was a great success, but it brought to the surface some unfinished theological business. A pious family here or there is one thing, but a flood of Gentiles entering the church without first passing through the synagogue is quite another. There were issues that had to be figured out and decisions that could not be arbitrated on the fly. The church needed a sit-down, and in Acts chapter 15, such a sit-down was duly called and conducted. I. Howard Marshall refers to the Jerusalem Council as the structural and theological center of Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, and I think he's exactly right. Once these issues have been decided, it will be full speed ahead on all fronts in terms of the church's outreach to the Gentiles. This is the story of the council that literally changed the world. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. In these five verses, Luke introduces all the main characters in the first major theological crisis in the Christian church. We have Paul and Barnabas and the other leaders and teachers in Antioch who represent what we might call the outreach party. They're the folks who have 
launched the Gentile mission and who have been receiving large numbers of uncircumcised Gentiles into the church upon their profession of faith in Christ. They are loving it. They are convinced that this is the Spirit's will and that this represents obedience to the Great Commission as given by Jesus Christ. But some men came down from Judea. These would be more traditional Jewish Christians. In verse 5, we presume these are the same people referred to as coming from the party of the Pharisees. We know that many Pharisees embraced Jesus as the Messiah, and it also appears that they continued to keep the law and the Jewish traditions in a fairly strict and rigorous manner. Believing in Jesus did not automatically mean leaving the law behind. So we have outreach Christians on the one hand and rigorous traditional Pharisaic Christians on the other. Luke also tells us that the people in the pew generally were on the side of the outreach Christians. In verse 3, he tells us that Paul and Barnabas related all of what God was doing in the Gentile world to these churches on their way to the council, and this brought great joy to everyone involved. Lastly, Luke introduces the people who will arbitrate the issue, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Now, the apostles we know fairly well, But who are these elders? Most scholars believe that the early church adopted the general pattern of leadership that was in use in the Jewish synagogue. These elders were thus older men who had been recognized for their wisdom and prudence and who were generally charged with the administrative oversight of the religious community. It is interesting to compare This reference with the one in Acts 11, verse 30. There, it's talking about the relief money that was being gathered in Antioch and transferred to the poor in Jerusalem. The text says, And they did so, they sent this money, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, the money was sent to the elders without any reference to the apostles. But here in Acts 15, where there are theological issues at play, the text says, They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So the elders operated independently when it came to the relief money, but it is the apostles who take center stage when it comes to theology. Now, I'm not saying that you'd want to build your polity around that observation. I'm just pointing it out as a matter of interest. It is clear that the whole church was involved in deciding these theological issues, but As the speeches make clear, the apostles are being viewed here as the critical leaders in the process. Story continues in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, in essence, this issue was decided 10 years ago. 
God sent me to open a door to the Gentiles. He confirmed that by means of a vision. And then again, climactically by the repetition, as it were, of Pentecost in the home of Cornelius the Centurion. The fact that these Gentile folks received the Holy Spirit when they believed ought to be all the evidence we require that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. The phrase he he uses there at the end of verse 11 is difficult to translate into English. Many scholars actually prefer to render it, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we believe in order to be saved just as they do. Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles when they believed proves that people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, irrespective of circumcision or formal adherence to the Jewish law. Now, it's important to hear what Peter is and is not saying. I, Howard Marshall, threads the needle here when he says, what Peter disputed was thus the need to obey the law in order to be saved. Whether Jews kept it for other reasons was a secondary matter, closed quote. So Peter isn't saying that the law has no function, and he isn't saying that Jewish people should disregard it. He isn't saying that Gentiles should disregard it. He's saying that it has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. For Jews and for Gentiles, that's what he's saying. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Again, it it seems like the Holy Spirit has gone to extraordinary lengths to confirm the inclusion of the Gentiles in a way that bypasses the synagogue and that bypasses circumcision. Just to make it clear that he is blessing this unusual turn of events, he has literally strewn the path of the grace-preaching apostles with miracles, signs, and wonders. He is waving a flare here to indicate that this is all above board and all part of the divine plan. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Now, We should probably stop here and notice a few things. Notice, first of all, how James is functioning here, almost like the chairman of the board. He is speaking last and apparently with great authority, and that seems odd to us at first glance. We've mentioned already that James received a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, whereupon he was converted and became a leader in the early church. He was known in history 
as an extraordinarily pious man. Apparently, his his knees were actually deformed by the amount of time he spent in prayer. He was disciplined, devoted, solemn, spiritual, and he wielded tremendous authority in the first generation, so much so that he is often spoken of as the first true bishop in Christian history. Second thing we should say here is that James uh, attempts to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing in the New Testament by reference to a prophecy found in the Old Testament. The apostles are learning to read the Bible backwards through the lens of the climactic events of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Looking back through that lens... James now sees Amos 9, 11 to 12 as referring ultimately to the ingrafting and the ingathering of the Gentiles. In Amos chapter 9, God promises that he will restore and rebuild the broken down house of David. Here now, James realizes that this must now be understood as referring to the salvation of the Gentiles. God will rebuild the house of David not by putting a king back on the throne, not by defeating the Romans, but by calling to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. This is bigger than Israel. Therefore, this new wine is going to need newer, larger, and more expansive wineskins to contain this undeniable work of the Spirit. And I... I think how he gets there is almost as interesting as where he arrives. I just want you to see that before we read about his judgment in verse 19. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because I'd like to talk a little more about how he got there. Because as you say, tracing out James' line of thought here is really interesting. He takes a quotation from the Old Testament, specifically from the prophet Amos, that was originally about the restoration and expansion of Israel, and he applies it wholesale to the church. Is that legitimate? I mean, I guess it must be, because it's happening right here in the New Testament. But is that the way we are supposed to be reading the promises of the Old Testament as well? Well, of course, the answer depends on which Old Testament promises we're talking about. But yes, there is absolutely no denying the fact that the early church came to understand all of those Old Testament prophecies about the growth and expansion of the house of Israel to be fulfilled in the Gentile outreach of the church. James sees all of these Greek and Roman people flooding into the church, and he says, this is that. This is the restoration of the fallen house of David. And Christians have been seeing and saying that for the last 2,000 years. The modern missionary movement was actually launched by a sermon preached by William Carey on Isaiah 54 too. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. The prophet there was looking into the future and seeing a massive expansion of the house of Israel. And William Carey, surveying the opportunity in India, said, This is that. Reaching those people will be the fulfillment of this promise. That's cool. I never knew that. Yeah. So in general, I would say that it is pretty mainstream to understand all the promises of the Bible as landing in some way climactically on the person and work of Christ and on the continuation of that work through the believing church. And that's, I guess, what you mean about reading the Bible backwards then, right? Like we take what we know about Jesus and we take that understanding with us back into those more confusing texts in the Old Testament. Yes, but not in such a way as to obscure the sense it would have had to the original readers. Often in the progression of providence, there is an immediate partial fulfillment of a promise that helps us anticipate a further 
ultimate fulfillment in Christ and in the mission of Christ carried on by the church. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 19. Therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So Gentiles, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to become Christians. They, they don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. That's what was at stake here. Everyone is, is going to get saved the same way, by grace, through faith in Christ. However, well apart from any issue related to salvation, let's do what we can, James says, to live peaceably, wisely, and respectfully with one another. Towards that end, he advises these new Christians to avoid idolatry. Now, this likely refers to participating in feasts where the food was being offered ceremonially to idols. To to avoid sexual immorality, he says also, the word used there likely relates to the holiness code in Leviticus, which sets down rules about who you can marry, who you can't, what constitutes lawful and unlawful sex. And then lastly, he tells them to be considerate with respect to food preparation. Now, this is the one that confuses most modern readers. Why in the world would he mention this? And the reason, of course, is that so much Christian fellowship happened around tables. If you're going to eat together as Jews and Gentiles, then you're going to need to prepare the food in a way that everyone can participate without being offended in their conscience. This is basic human civility. If you're going to eat together, you have to pay attention to the needs and scruples of everyone who has been invited. So James is not talking about how to get saved here. He's talking about how to live in a wise loving, and considerate manner with other people from various cultures and backgrounds. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, 
who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Thus, we come to the end of perhaps the most important council in the history of Christianity. Let's pause here and notice a few important things. Let's let's notice, first of all, that they did not try to maintain unity by stifling honest conversation. Sometimes we hear people talk about unity as something that needs to be protected at all costs. And one of those costs, we discover, is honest conversation, dissent, and legitimate concern. If you raise a question, you're accused of damaging the unity of the church. Let's just notice that honest conversation was not the enemy of unity in this story, but rather one of the principal agents of unity. David Peterson says usefully here, in this historical framework, Luke presented conflict and debate as legitimate and necessary elements in the process of discerning God's will. He showed how such disagreement serves to reveal the true bases for fellowship and elicit the fundamental principles of community identity, closed quote. Let's also notice something about the process. Ben Witherington III notes here that the way to resolve conflict in antiquity was to call a meeting of the assembly of the people and listen to and consider speeches following the conventions of deliberative rhetoric, the aim of which was to overcome stasis or conflict and produce concord or unity, closed quote. The church should be a place where honest questions and differences can be discussed and debated openly. And it is the job of the leaders of the church to provide a context for such discussions, such that stasis can be overcome and concord and unity can be achieved. Christians should not be afraid of differences. Differences are inevitable. We see through a glass darkly. But we have the help of the Holy Spirit. We have access to the whole of Scripture. Therefore, we ought to be able to speak to one another and to arrive at a real and robust unity in the faith. God, make it so again in our day. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, if anything, this passage proves the honesty of Holy Scripture. We've just achieved unity. We've we've just overcome serious differences. It would be marvelous to end this chapter on a high. But alas... It was not to be. 
there's a, there's a missiological difference now that has to be sorted out. Paul and Barnabas agree that it'd be good to go back and check in on the churches they had previously planted. Presumably, they would deliver the decision from Jerusalem and then spend some time on discipleship and leadership development. Everybody thought that was brilliant. However, Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another try, and the Apostle Paul thought better not to. Paul felt like this task was just too important to entrust to somebody who had already shown that they couldn't handle the rigors of the road. If John Mark had another breakdown, their progress would be slowed, and there was simply too much at stake. Barnabas, on the other hand, wanted to give Mark a chance to show that he had learned his lesson and grown up as a man. Now listen, both are making good points. I can see either argument. And and what's interesting is that instead of fighting this out to the death, they just agree to disagree and to divide the task between them. Paul goes overland towards what had been the last stop on the line. He goes north and then west uh, on the trip that he has planned, and Barnabas covers the bottom end. Barnabas sails out to what had been the first step in the previous journey. And one assumes they plan to meet in the middle. Now, whether they did or not, Luke does not record. We know that Paul continued to think of Barnabas as a friend and collaborator. He, he refers to him as such in 1 Corinthians 9.6. We know that he later came to be very fond of John Mark. We know that from 2 Timothy 4.11. So this was by no means a permanent breach, but it was a, a significant difference of opinion. Paul took Silas and went one way. Barnabas took Mark and went the other. If there is a lesson here for us, it is that sometimes fighting it out to conclusion isn't necessary or helpful. We ought to just get on with it. Sometimes dividing up the task is the thing to do. Some, some, sometimes dividing is a good thing if the alternative is paralysis and indecision. Listen, you can be friends with people you aren't currently working alongside of. So it is here. Paul and Barnabas remain friends, but they stopped being collaborators with respect to this particular mission. Rather than harmonizing their missiology, they just divide the field. The door had been opened for a full-scale mission to the Gentile world, and both Paul and Barnabas were determined to make the most of that opportunity. So the partnership was adjusted, the field was divided, and the friendship endured. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 